morning, everyone, and welcome to Julius Baer's Moving Markets podcast. It's Thursday, the 11th of May, and my name is Helen Freer. Coming up on today's show, we had inflation figures out of the US yesterday. I'll be talking about this and more market news with my colleague Bernadette Anderko. Then we'll hear from Norbert Rucker about hydrogen. And finally, I'll be speaking to Nicola Jordan to get an update from our CIO office. So I'll start then by saying good morning, Bernadette. I think we have to start this morning with the inflation news, don't we? Uh, Indeed we do. Yes, good morning, Helen. Well, um, yesterday in the US, we saw the arrival of the highly anticipated April inflation data, which saw CPI continue its slow downtrend, reaching 4.9% year on year in April. And core inflation also edged down to 5.5%. More importantly, key services prices that had contributed to the massive inflation overshoot have shown further signs of moderation. The number offers the now data-dependent Fed further room to pause rate hikes in July. A reminder for listeners, our analysts continue to expect the Fed to remain on hold until the intensifying impact of tighter rates on growth will likely trigger a first rate cut in December. And how did markets react to the data? Well, the the Nasdaq Composite closed over 1% higher yesterday as investors fled to tech stocks. The S&P 500 added uh, just under half a percent to close just over 4,135. Overall, market gains were contained as cyclical stocks, which are the most closely linked to the economy, traded lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed the day just shy of 1% lower. Uh, Treasury yields tumbled after the report, further supporting the stock market, which has been worried about higher rates snuffing out economic growth. The yield on the two-year Treasury fell about 11 basis points to 3.91%, and the rates on the 10-year declined 8 basis points to 3.44%. The dollar held losses uh, following the drop in Treasury yields. Oil advanced for the fourth session in five, both as a result of the weakened dollar and the fact that traders were assessing interruptions to supplies. And gold edged up as the cooling inflation narrative fueled speculation that the Federal Reserve will soon pause tightening. And what else is on investors' minds at the moment? Well, obviously, the debt ceiling question, which seems to be an annual looming crisis, but normally all comes out well in the wash. Um, Nevertheless, traders are worried that an agreement might not be reached before June the 1st, which is the earliest date that the Treasury Department says the US could default. There's been little tangible process, which is reflected in the cost of ensuring America's debt against default now eclipsing that of some of the emerging markets. Uh, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy plan to hold another meeting on Friday. So hopefully we'll get more news then. Okay, and let's move over to Asia now, where we've also had inflation data out from China. What did these numbers look like? Yes, you're right, Helen. China did release its April inflation data overnight. The consumer price index rose 0.1% in April year on year. That's the slowest since early 2021. Month on month, prices declined by 0.1%, better than expected by analysts. Core inflation, which excludes food and energy, remained steady at 0.7% year on year and 0.1% month on month. China's producer price index, which measures prices paid by wholesalers, fell 3.6%. And how have markets in Asia reacted to this data? Well, in early trade, there was some movement upwards. Mainland China shares rose, but Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fluctuated. But when I looked at the screens a little earlier, the main Asian indices were all in the red. In Hong Kong, the cost to borrow overnight reached a 16-year high as liquidity tightened after authorities repeatedly intervened to boost the local currency. 
And the yield on China's 10-year government bonds fell about two basis points to 2.69%, set for the lowest level since November. This also came as China asked commercial banks to cap rates offered on some deposits to lower lenders' funding costs. And what have we got coming up today? What should we look out for? Well, stubborn double-digit inflation is set to force the Bank of England into a 12th straight interest rate rise this afternoon, even though the end of its lightning-quick hiking cycle is coming into view. Um, Economists and investors expect the Monetary Policy Committee to back another quarter-point boost in the bank rate to 4.5% today, the highest since 2008. Uh, The decision is due at 12 o'clock London time. Uh, In the US, we've got producer price data and initial jobless claims later out in the day. And let's not forget that it's still earnings season. Uh, Deutsche Telekom, ING and Bayer are among a flurry of companies unveiling results today. In fact, I just saw a headline from ING that they plan to buy back 1.5 billion euros worth of shares after higher interest rates lifted first quarter profit past analysts' estimates. Okay, so with all of this then, uh, what's the futures board telling us at the moment? Um, Well, it's looking like we're going to have um, a higher open in Europe. I'm hesitating because uh, 15 minutes ago, the the future screens were quite red in Europe, but they're now nearly all green. And so are those for the US. So um, good luck out there today. That's it for me. Great. Thank you very much, Bernadette, for the roundup. Let's move on to you now, Norbert. So this morning, we're going to talk about hydrogen. We see news about hydrogen projects popping up a bit more often now. Do you think we're at the beginning of the hydrogen era? Well, that remains a bit uncertain. And yes, you're right. There's increasing news flow. I mean, the much-discussed Inflation Reduction Act put some emphasis on nourishing these markets for low-carbon fuels, including hydrogen, carbon capture, and so on. Europe followed suit. And yesterday, we also heard from down under from Australia that they are ready to offer financial support to hydrogen projects. But there's really various challenges that remain that need to be overcome. Um, including that the technologies involved are still quite immature and not really available at scale. But the big challenge really is that the production of hydrogen comes with substantial energy losses, as does the transportation of hydrogen. So for us, it seems very unlikely that in the future, we will see ships with super chilled hydrogen shipping across the ocean as we are accustomed today in the case of natural gas. This simply seems a business case that is very uneconomic. So given all these uncertainties, we also know that most likely there will be a place for hydrogen and this molecule in the energy future, but we just are not really sure yet where it's going to be. And it seems very likely that we're going to see a mark in a business form, but only towards 2030. Okay, but still, how do you think this market might evolve? Well, this this era, which is more than an era of hydrogen to evolve really in a, in a decade or so, there might be different pathways. And some of them we might be seeing kind of growing today. One end, there might well be regional kind of chem- chemical clusters where certain, ish, certain things kind of come together. So you have the resources, you have the users together. And one example might be Europe along the coast of the North Sea, because there's this potential of offshore wind, there's the potential of CO2 storage, there's uh, chemical users close by. So such kind of clusters could evolve there, with hydrogen being a part of it. Uh, Second, hydrogen is also used for ammonia production. Uh, Ammonia is a well-established market today. And that, in fact, could be something that might evolve in uh, Southeast Asia. So Australia basically not exporting hydrogen, but instead ammonia, because there's also Asian customers that are keen to import more of ammonia. 
And uh, a third pathway might be hydrogen, which is used in parts of methanation and basically biogas production. These are niches that are evolving today in Europe, in North America. And in fact, we already have commercial projects in operation here in Switzerland. And how important do you think hydrogen is for Europe in terms of its efforts to become less dependent on natural gas? Well, it's a piece of the puzzle, but its role should not be overestimated. And uh, some have the feeling that's that's what's happening currently in Europe. Um, if you look at the natural gas market, natural gas use most likely is declining substantially longer term. Because if you look at the heating, uh, there we have the alternatives, established heat pumps. If you look at electricity, clean energy is taking over, cutting use of fossil fuels. If you look at the industry, there's also a whole bunch of different technologies which are becoming economical to substitute natural gas use. There's only a small part that remains. And basically, it's among these clusters, clusters that we described. And that's overall the issue with this political activism, if not overactivism, that it might establish an economically unwarranted market or oversized market for hydrogen and thus establish an energy system that is more expensive than needed. So that's the big wild card, politics and the deep subsidy pockets. But overall, if you zoom out and look at the investment opportunities, we have a neutral view on the topic. And um, it's a topic that continues to deflate valuation-wise because it has, it has been in a hype cycle basically two years ago. And we still see better opportunities elsewhere within the energy transition topic in areas that are more mature, that have are broader, that have much more investment potential today. That's it from my side. Great. Thanks very much, Norbert, for joining me this morning. And last but not least, let me move over to you now, Nicola. Good to have you on the show this morning as well. Could you perhaps start by sharing the latest news from the Investment Committee? Yeah, thank you, Helen, and good morning, everyone. Well, as I was on vacation for the last two weeks, I'm still getting up to speed myself, to be perfectly honest. But actually, I was quite surprised to see how little happened on markets during my absence. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know we had the takeover of First Republic Bank. We had the 10th consecutive rate hike by the Fed. And we saw another strong US job market report. But if I look at the S&P 500, it's pretty much at the same level as when I left. The crux now is that while markets keep demonstrating their resilience, the whole extent to which the developments in the banking sector of the last few months will impact the supply of credit is still uncertain. So we have to continue to closely monitor the situation there. What's your current view on the probability of a recession in the US? Well, it feels like this recession has been anticipated by market participants for months now, and it keeps on being more and more delayed. As we mentioned quite often in recent weeks, we also believe that the probability has increased by quite a bit, but we still struggle to see the cracks in the real economy. I mean, the US employment rate is still as low as 3.4%, and the latest US corporate earnings results, as well as US job data, continue to demonstrate the strength of the economy. This means that we could potentially see a scenario in which financial asset owners feel like a recession has arrived when asset prices correct. But on the other hand, most households that do not own significant financial assets will not experience the real recession as un unemployment remains low and real wages turn positive. And what do you think would happen if we did see a recession in the US? How would you react to this? So if the Fed's monetary tightening and the stress in the U.S. regional banks trigger a deeper credit crunch, the U.S. economy might experience a soft recession. 
The recession scenario would likely to be soft because, as I said, there is no major imbalance in the US private sector. In this economic recession scenario, S&P 500 earnings would probably decline by 10 to 15%, the equity risk premium would increase, and the S&P 500 index would decline towards the 3,000 to 3,500 points range. However, if investors want to protect their portfolio against such a scenario, shorting US large cap companies would not be a very advisable strategy. As large public companies are likely to be among the last ones to lose access to funding, underweighting other equity segments that are relatively more dependent on access to external funding is the prudent choice. That's all from my side. Back to you, Helen. Great. Thank you very much, Nicola. So that is all for today. Thank you again to all my guests on the show today and thank you all for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review on whichever platform you like to listen on. We would love to hear your feedback. And do join us again tomorrow when I'll be back with more of our colleagues, including Tim Gagey, who will update us with his latest thoughts on currencies. Until then, I wish you all a great day and bye for now. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliasbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further other important legal information. Beyond Markets is a weekly podcast where Julius Bear experts and external speakers discuss some of the latest market developments. They share their key research and insights on today's ever-changing economic landscape and present practical advice. Search for Beyond Markets on your favourite podcast player.